out. Welcome to Wednesday night. Hope everybody's doing good. Having a good day? Yeah? Right on. Awesome. Welcome everybody watching online too on our live stream. Glad you could join in with us. We're in Genesis chapter 16 if you want to make your way there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we got some on the back table underneath the, the table there. So just go ahead and sneak out, grab one of those right there. I don't know about you guys, so maybe some of you have met some of those families that like to introduce their children, you know. Here's little Ronnie. Here's little Donnie. Here we got Lonnie over here. Lonnie's a mistake, you know. <laughs> a little bit of a surprise. You ever heard anybody just kind of say, like, please, man, never, ever say something like that, right? Surprise, maybe. Mistake, never. But we're going to find here in Genesis chapter 16... Abraham and Sarai perhaps had reason for similar sentiments here. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And... Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, then Sarai, Abraham's wife, or Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife after Abraham had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So here's Abraham and Sarai. Let's get that story kind of in our mind again. They're in the promised land. They're in the land of Canaan, just where God said he will bring them. They've just been confirmed in chapter 15, the promises of God, again, that God was going to give them the land, that God was going to make of them a great nation, that through Abraham's seed, that the nations of all the world would be blessed, and everybody be blessed through, through Abraham and, and through his seed. It was all, you know, again, reconfirmed, detailed, chapter 15, it goes all the way back to chapter 12, when the promise was given, but then God reconfirms it here in chapter 15, in fact, just go over to chapter 15, verse 4, just for, a, a, again, a bit of reminder. And, and it says there in chapter 15, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. That, then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. Remember, Abraham's getting old. His wife getting old. Abraham's going, chapter 15, what about my, my servant here? Why don't we just do a work through him? Because I don't think that it's going to work with me any longer. Especially with Sarai over here. It's, I don't think it's happening. And, and Abraham's trying to bring, no. One's going to come from your own body is going to be your heir. And so God's reconfirming this, reminding them. And then remember in chapter 15, God went through that wonderful covenant ceremony there, revealing that he, God, singular, solely, was the one that was going to carry this whole covenant to fruition, apart from Abraham. Abraham, just like what God did in chapter 15, put him in a deep sleep. Abraham had to just sit back and relax and rest and go, God, you've got this. Right? Pretty simple. So, Abraham and Sarai must be people just full of faith. Bursting with confidence now, right? Not so. I mean, you'd think they'd be just walking around with all this trust and confidence in God. They're getting the nursery all set up. You know, they're painting the wall. Should we go baby blue? Should we go navy blue? Let's go. Who's got the crib? All right, let's just go on Facebook Marketplace. We'll get a crib here. Let's make this all happen. I mean, it's a done deal, right? In their minds, it should be. That's not what we're seeing here. This isn't how the story is unfolding for us. You see, they've been dwelling in the land of Canaan, it says, for 10 years now. 10 years. Remember, the promise came to Abraham even before they'd come to the land. For 10 years now, God had said, here's the promise. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And 10 years have unfolded, and Abraham and Sarai sitting back going, did we get that right? Did we really hear from God? Abraham, are you sure you saw those sacrifices there in chapter 15 being burned up and that fire walking through? Or were you just dreaming? 
Like, did that really happen? Is this really the way that it's unfolded? Sarah, you see, is 75 years old at this time. And I'm sure she's looking at her condition through the lens of human limitation rather than the lens of faith and God's unlimitedness. See, time has brought a bit of a lapse of faith here now. Sarai is not getting any younger here, and she's beginning to think that for Abraham to be a father of many, well, there must be a, a plan B in mind. Sarai is the author of that gospel message, God helps those who help themselves. Right? You ever heard somebody come and quote that? Well, you know what they say, God just, where's that found again? It's somewhere, I think, in the New Testament. God helps those who help themselves. Man, I'm sure you've had people come to you, and they think this is, this is quoting scripture. It's not in the Bible, in case I'm bursting any bubbles here. I'm sorry, it's not in the Bible. It's not even biblical. Like, it's not even connects to anything biblical. See, God is never sitting up in heaven stressing over running out of time. God is never relying on human ability going, oh my goodness, how come Sarah and Abraham's not getting it together? I was going to do a work to them, but my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it happen now. These guys are stressing me out. God's never doing that. God's never worried about these things. When God says something, it's a done deal. It's going to happen. No matter how much time unfolds, God is never worried about time. God's never looking at his watch going, oh my goodness, man, I'm way, way behind schedule here. God's never doing that. Not sitting there going, Abraham, come on, hurry it up. Get things happening. God's never worried about these things. God's got it all under control. And what God wants from us is to simply be people of faith, trusting him, remaining faithful even when things are not making sense to us. As Sarah and Abraham are, are sitting here going, man, we're getting old. Like, we're, we're not seemingly like coming into, into line with what God wants to do here. Even when things don't seem sensible to us, God says, live by faith. Trust me. See, God is, is outside of time. He's never in a hurry. And for us, time can be a real enemy of faith, can't it? I'm sure you've experienced that. Where you've seen the clock ticking down, you've seen situations seemingly like they're coming to a dead end, wondering, oh my goodness, I gotta, I gotta make something happen here. I gotta help God out here. This is exactly where Abraham and Sarah are, are finding themselves. But God is outside time, he's never in a hurry. In fact, it's in the seeming delays that he's actually often doing a work to increase our faith and increase his glory. Remember what happened with Jesus when it was reported to him that Lazarus, your friend, the one whom you love, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And his disciples are there thinking, okay, we better, we better go. Remember what happened in that situation there? Look at what it says in John 11, verse 3 to 6. It says, therefore the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. That doesn't seem like the actions of somebody that's really concerned and full of love towards this man. Oh, Lazarus is sick. Oh, too bad for him. Yeah, you know what? I got a couple more falafel places I need to hit up here before I make my way over there to see Lazarus. Let me, give me a couple days, and I'll make my way over there. That doesn't seem like something that's really caring. But what did Jesus say? This sickness is not in death, but it's for the glory of God. Jesus delayed, and in that delay, what happened? Lazarus went from being sick to dying, to where he was going to end up being in the tomb for a number of days. Why so? So that Jesus would do an even greater work than just making somebody well from sickness, but where Jesus could say, I can raise the dead. And he did just that with Lazarus. 
when you are in a situation where you don't see that things are getting better, are you more inclined to exercise faith in God or exercise human wisdom? You see, our temptation is always going to be, I, I can make things better. I can help. I can make something happen here. But the question must always be, what does God want me to do? And if that is uncertain, waiting on the Lord will always be better than moving ahead from the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Sarah, you see, moved ahead from the Lord's plan and came up with her own plan. And before you begin to think, oh, Sarah, how could you? How many times have we done that? Where we thought, this seems to make better sense for me. Let me just go ahead and take care of that. And we move ahead apart from the Lord. We've all done that, I'm sure, in one way or another. Now, this plan seems pretty crazy, seems quite illicit, and, and it was, but it was also a very common practice in this day. This wasn't some you know, shady proposal that Sarai was making. It was a very natural thing to do in that day when someone was barren. You see, in this time, to not have any kids was kind of a sign of a curse. It was a heavy kind of weight to bear. You were looked down upon as though something were wrong with you. So Sarah realizes that Abraham is not going to go and get ahead with her. So she offers up her maid, Hagar, to be the surrogate mother. Again, a common practice. Now notice it says there that Hagar was an Egyptian. Verse 3 there. Hagar's an Egyptian. Most likely, Abraham and Sarai picked up Hagar on another time when they had a lapse of faith, when they went down to Egypt when there was a, a famine. They didn't consult the Lord. They didn't ask of God. They didn't seek counsel. They just went and said, this makes sense to us. Let's go to Egypt. And here it seems they picked up Hagar. Egypt becomes a picture of the world for us in, in Scripture. As believers were freed from this world, the great exodus out of Egypt pictures that deliverance from the world and sin that had a grip on us to where we've become free in and through Jesus Christ. But too often, we can easily desire to go back to the things of the world or we might go and rely upon the world's methods or strategies to help us out. Abraham and Sarah here are taking a worldly symbol and thinking this is going to be of help to them. Yet God all along wants us to seek him and him alone for our help. Again, Sarah and Abraham are, are perhaps reasoning that this is just a very natural thing to do. Everybody's doing it. Baron, you take one of your maidservants, no problem. Yet the overriding decision must be, what does God want me to do in this situation? You see, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. You see, there's many times where we might look at something and go, no, no, that's okay. That's, it's, it's lawful. It's not wrong for me to do this. But the question is, is this what's going to be helpful? See, we have great liberty and freedom now in Jesus Christ. But the question must always be, is this what God has for me? Is this something that's going to be helpful? Now, as we move along here, we're going to see just how unhelpful this plan B was for Abraham and Sarai. But before we move on, can I just say how important it is? It's interesting where this is all fitting in with our, our Sunday morning series as we're looking at marriage right now in Ephesians 5. But can I say how important it is for husbands to lead in the things of God in their marriage relationships? Because too often husbands take a back seat in this department and it adds difficulty and conflict in their relationship. Notice what we read there at the end of verse 2 that Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. Listen, husbands, it's not wrong to listen to your wife. Many times God speaks through our wives, like, you know, 98% of the time, I'd probably say. Wives, amen? Yeah, okay, all right. I'm helping you out there, wives, but God speaks through our wives. And we need to heed their voice. We, man, I'm thankful for my wife. 
She is just a, a source of wisdom and help for me. But I know that my God-given role is to lead in our relationship. We, we do it together. But God's put that responsibility on me. And we must be careful that we direct our wives, not just roll over and kind of listen, go, well, yeah, I don't want to take the responsibility here. Rather that husbands lead. Listen, God's created the two sexes very differently. And he's called men to a place of headship over their wives where they're to lead them in the ways of God. And Abraham sadly erred in going along with this. And we're going to see it's caused great problems. Look at verse 4. So it says there in verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abraham said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So when Hagar conceived, what happened? It brought conflict in the home. Too often we think what we think is going to bring help or happiness only compounds the problem. See, Satan is very masterful at presenting something to think, this is what's going to help. you got a problem with this is going to make it better. And too often when we latch on to what Satan is presenting to us, all we find is that it's only compounded the problem. It's never a solution to go opposite what God is directing us to do. It's never going to be helpful when you latch on to the world's methods, the world's ways, or to what Satan is trying to present to you, thinking that it's going to provide some kind of relief or help. Here, Sarah is finding that, oh my goodness. Well, we've got our child. She's become pregnant but it's created a whole source of other problems now. And when realizing the error of her ways, <laughs> Sarai, what do you do? What does she do? She goes and blames her husband, right? She's like, what is she saying there? She's saying, my wrong is all your fault. <laughs> yeah, I, I should have done this, but this is all your fault, Abraham. She, it's may be on you, she says. We love to look to blame others, right? when we're in the wrong, when we've done something that we shouldn't have done. In fact, this whole passage kind of echoes the pattern in Adam and Eve. Remember, it's Eve that brought the fruit to Adam as Sarai brought Hagar to Abraham. Adam went and he took of the fruit, just as Abraham willingly took of of Hagar. They didn't need to. Both Adam Adam and Abraham needed to stand up in that time and stop their wives from going down that path of disobedience. But they instead acquiesced. Now, I'm not saying that women are at fault for two of the greatest problems that we've seen happen in the world. No, the word is saying that. I'm not saying that. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the case. No. But, but this is where husbands need to lead and lovingly come alongside their wife in protection and direction according to God and according to his word. And, and things aren't getting any better because Abraham says to Sarah, Sarah, you go ahead and you take Hagar and do to her as you please, he says there. Do to her as you please. The sad thing is that because two people have stepped away from trusting God, they continue just to kind of free fall now into sin, and it's affecting others, sadly. Hagar should be a person being ministered to by these two people of God. Instead, she's being treated harshly, and she flees. It's not a good situation that we see happening here. This should never have been what was happening. But because of a lapse of faith, because of two lapses of faith, the one that led them into Egypt in the first place, picking up Hagar, and now using Hagar for their own benefit and then treating her harshly. They've got an innocent victim, in a sense, here that's fleeing now. But what a great account we have before us. Look at verse 7 with me. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, 
Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Verse 14, therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. I'm going to stop right there. So what a wonderful account here. Hagar's making her way back down to Egypt. She's like, I'm getting away from these people. And I thought things were going to be good with this man who's apparently had this great promise of God. She's making her way back down to Egypt where she's from. She's in the wilderness of Shur, which is kind of that northeastern border of Egypt here. And it's on her way, while she's in the wilderness, that she has this incredible, wonderful encounter. She's met at a well by the angel of the Lord. Now, this is the first mention we have in God's word of this angel of the Lord. Notice if, if you've got a, a new King James Bible, like what I'm using here, that angel of the Lord is capitalized. Many would agree and believe that what we have here is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a, a Christophany, you would say. This appearance of Jesus Christ comes and he meets with Hagar here in the wilderness. And we have multiple encounters of this angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. I think it's quite something to see the situation being this first appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Because he comes to a woman, a person who is outside the covenant people of God. And he comes to one who is in the wilderness and is distraught. I think that is such a beautiful picture we hear because this is the very heart of our Savior. He's no respecter of persons. He knows your situation and he desires to come alongside you and minister to you in your time of need or grief or longing. Jesus comes and he ministers to this vulnerable woman. Jesus met Hagar at a well. He did so with another woman at the well, John chapter 4. And he comes and he ministers to this woman who comes to the well at a time of day when nobody is there. Why? To avoid all the public scorn. As she was seen as kind of a, a loose woman around town, yet Jesus comes to her. No respect her persons. Coming to minister to the, the deepest need that we all have. That is to be loved, to be accepted but ultimately to find salvation in the Lord. And here, this angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ comes and he ministers to Hagar at this time. What a wonderful picture we have. Now, the word that the angel of the Lord gave to Hagar may not have been what she wanted to hear. What does he say? He says, return and submit. Return and, and submit. Submit yourself under Sarai's hand. This may not always be an easy thing, but as we discussed this past Sunday in our message on submission, it's a needed thing in the life of the believer. Jesus has called us all to submit one to another. And Hagar would come to see that it's in her submission, not to Abraham or to Sarai precisely, but more so to God, that it's in that submission that God would bless her. God is concerned more about your growth and good then he is about you being comfortable. And oftentimes, that growth and good comes through times of adversity and affliction that we are being called to submit to rather than run from. How many times do we love to run away when things get a little bit hot, get a little bit difficult? We want to run, but yet the Lord says, just submit and, and trust me in it. Guzik said, if we seek to change our circumstances, we will jump from the frying pan into the fire. We must be triumphant exactly where we are. It's not a change of climate we need, but a change of heart. 
The flesh wants to run away, but God wants to demonstrate his power exactly where we have known our greatest chagrin. There's a Barnhouse said, David Guz quoting from him. So God calls Hagar to return. But before she does, God gives her this wonderful promise now that she's going to have a child and she will have descendants that will be too multiple to count. That from her, there's going to be a great many people come. However, <laughs> well, going to come with some conditions. It says in verse 12 that he's going to be a wild man. This man is going to be a wild man, and he will be in conflict with many. Ishmael is going to be this child, and he's going to become the father of the Arab people. And like the Lord said, he would dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And what are we finding? That we're still reeling and experiencing the conflict of this encounter even today. Just like the Lord said. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. It's the descendants of Ishmael that have created a lot of tension in the Middle East. The historical reality is that Ishmael's offspring become a thorn to God's people, both under the Old and New Covenants. Through Ishmael, the firstborn, they claim Abraham as their father and affirm that they are his truest representations Little did Abraham and Sarah imagine that their shortcut would originate a conflict that would run for millennia and that oceans of blood would be spilt. Abraham, the father of the faithful, had begotten a wild man instead of a child of grace. How tragic was Abraham's expediency. Hagar recognized the significance of this event, however. Notice what she does. She, she sees that this is God who sees her and she called the name of the well Beer Lahai Roy, which means the well of the one who lives and sees me. She recognizes that it's God who is alive, who is living, that has seen her and come to her in this time. This would have implication for Hagar in reminding her that no matter what circumstances surround her, no matter what she was going through, God sees and he's able to help. And he desires to come alongside us in our greatest need. It would have implications for Sarai and Abraham in reminding them that God sees and knows what they're doing. So in the same way, their, their treatment of Hagar may seem like it was done in private, but God sees and we're accountable to him. This reminder to Abraham and Sarai, listen, God sees, God knows. And we want to live in a manner that's honoring to him. So, Ending this chapter, it says, so Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So as Hagar returned, she no doubt shared this wonderful encounter with Abraham and Sarai. Seems as though, as is evident when we continue on here, that they've taken her in, and they've begun to live together here now in, in, in this familial community in a sense but no doubt she shared all this with Abraham and Sarah because what does Abraham do he names his son Ishmael where did he get that name from from Hagar who said this is what God has said and Abraham believes and he names his son Ishmael Ishmael means God will hear and he was that constant reminder for them of that omniscience and, and, and availability of God now, Paul would later expound on the story in Galatians 4. Look at what it says here. Galatians 4, verse 21 to 26. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he had the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Sounds kind of complicated. You might be reading that going, what is being said there? We'll just jump onto our Galatians sermon series online. You'll get a little bit of a commentary on that here. But the idea here is that Paul is using both Hagar and Sarai as pictures of, you know, the covenant that came through Mount Sinai, which is, you know, again, this work of the flesh, understanding that we can never do it. But in and through Christ, we have something far greater and better. And it's the work of the Spirit 
One brings you into bondage, and one sets you free. It's the choice that we have on almost a daily account. Are we going to be those that walk by faith, or are we going to follow our own ingenuity and walk in the flesh? Are you going to be people of, the faith, of faith or of the flesh? And that's what we are picturing here for us. And to truly grow in faith, understand that God is going to give us lots of opportunities for our faith to grow. If you're going to grow in faith, God is going to give you opportunities for your faith to grow. Check this out here now in chapter 17. Thirteen years later, when Abram was 99 years old, it's 13 years now from the end of chapter 16 into chapter 17. He's 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall now be Abraham. For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So first of all, God comes and he tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to walk blameless. I want you to walk blameless. But before he did, he reveals himself to Abram. And he showed Abram this character and nature of God. He says, Abram, I am almighty God. This is in the Hebrew, that term, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. It's the first time this distinct name of God is used in Scripture. And it'll be used some, uh, I believe, 47 times or so throughout Scripture. Now, there's some debate as to what exactly the name El Shaddai means. Kidner says a traditional analysis of the name is God, El, who saw is sufficient. Day. Clark says El Shaddai, I'm God all-sufficient. From Shaddai to Shed to pour out, I am that God who pours out blessings, who gives them richly, abundantly, continually. Barnhill says the Hebrew word Shad means chest or breast. It may have in mind the strength of a man's chest, God's, God is almighty, or the comfort and nourishment of a woman's breast, God of tender care. Leopold says, Shaddai comes from the root Shaddad, which means to display power. We do know the Septuagint translates the word with the Greek uh, pantocrator, which means almighty, the one who has his hand on everything. So there's lots of kind of opinions as to what exactly El Shaddai is implying or meaning. But understand that God is revealing to Abraham that he is almighty. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is able. See, before we're going to follow the Lord and do what he asks of us, it's important for us to come to personal realization of who God is. We need to understand his character and nature that is at work in our lives. Abraham might see the difficulty of the situation before him, but now he's realizing God is the God who's able. God is the God who's able to help him to be mighty in his life, be blameless. How am I going to do that? God says, I'm almighty God. I am able. Now, to be blameless or perfect is to be without fault, without sin. The word sin, again, like many of you would know, means literally missing the mark. See, we might be aiming at the target, but we're not getting that bullseye very often. How are we going to be perfect if we're naturally sinners? Well, Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for our sins, to pay the fine for our missing of the mark, our sin. And now what God requires of me and you is simply to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. That's what God needs of us because it's there that we then become clothed in Christ's righteousness, his perfection. 
We're not blameless by what we do. We're blameless because we're in Christ. And so God discusses now this, this covenant with Abraham in more detail. In fact, this word covenant is going to be used 13 times in this chapter alone. This is a, a, a very key theme in Genesis chapter 17, this term covenant. It's this agreement that God is making. And God is revealing again that this is his covenant that he's making with Abraham. Again, this is a work that Almighty God will accomplish regardless of Abraham. Ten times we read God saying, I will. Abraham, I will do this. I will do that. I will take care of this. It's God who's going to uphold this covenant. And we notice that it is an everlasting covenant. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 19, all say this is an everlasting covenant. This is something that's not conditional upon what God's people are going to do. This isn't conditional upon things all lining up the right way. This is an everlasting covenant because it's one that God is unilaterally carrying out and accomplishing. Now, I think Abraham, when he hears he's this call to walk blameless before him, was seeing perhaps the difficulty in that. And he humbles himself here. It says he, he fell on his face. But again, God comes and he does something so wonderful in Abraham's life. God comes and he changes the name of Abraham, which means exalted father, to now be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So he inserts this ha, this H-A. It's a breathy sound. It was the Hebrew letter H that's added here. Many have thought that this is the time or a time that God kind of came and filled Abraham with the spirit. The Hebrew word ruah is the word used for breath and also used for the spirit. Ruah. And now it's Abraham. And he's speaking this out here now and it's as though Abraham would be a changed man. And you see, that's the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life. All of us need to be those that are so daily relying upon that filling of the Holy Spirit. Understanding that in my own, I'm not going to be able to live this life that God has called me to. And I'm going to fail, I'm going to falter. But it's through the Spirit that we're able to accomplish what we cannot do in the flesh. See, God called Abraham to, to perfection, to walk blameless. But now he shows him the power that's available to achieve that. Do you, do you want to live a, a Christ-like life? Are you, are you tired of missing the mark? There's nothing you're going to be able to do in and of yourselves. It comes from a reliance upon the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to let the Spirit now rule over the flesh. Chapter 16 chronicles a work of the flesh. Now chapter 17 seems to chronicle this new work of the Spirit. Verse 9 here goes on to say, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here now, God makes his covenant. He not just makes covenant, he gives a sign of the covenant. That sign is circumcision. Youngblood says, as the rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant, and as the Sabbath is the sign of the Sinaiic covenant, Sinaitic covenant, I can't even say that. So circumcision became the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The rainbow and the Sabbath already existed prior to the institution of the covenants that they came to signify. So also, 
Circumcision did not originate with Abraham. It was practiced in Egypt and elsewhere centuries before his time, but it received new meaning now in Genesis 17. Similarly, thousands of people were crucified before the time of Jesus, but the cross took on a vastly new and different meaning when our Lord was crucified. So circumcision was to be a symbol now of this covenant, like a, like a wedding ring is the symbol of a, a covenant in marriage. A wedding ring doesn't make you married, but it shows you are married. Sadly, circumcision became a way that people believed that they were in covenant with God now. People began to boast in the fact that they were just simply circumcised. We're of the circumcision. We can't do anything wrong. We're God's people now. But this is never what God intended circumcision ultimately to be. If I look at what we see elsewhere in, in Scripture, it says in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Paul says in Romans 2, 29, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You see, Paul had to deal with those that were using circumcision as a way to say, that they're God's covenant people. They're right with God, simply because they're circumcised. Paul had to say, listen, you're not one that's right with God just because of circumcision. No, you're, you're a Jew when there's that work that's gone on inside. It's a work of the spirit, circumcision of the heart. God's desire in circumcision all along was to be a, a work of cutting away the flesh but that flesh of the old nature, cutting away the, the flesh that once marked our lives to say, now I'm a, a new person in Christ. Circumcision, J. Vernon McGee says, is the badge of the covenant. The Israelites did not circumcise themselves in order to become members of the covenant. They did this because they had the covenant from God. Circumcision occupied the same place that good works occupy for the believer today. You do not perform good works in order to be saved. You perform good works because you have been saved. That makes all the difference in the world. And notice it says there in verse 12, he who is eight days old among you. In other words, when your children are born, your male children are born, when they're eight days old, this is when you are to circumcise them. God probably commanded the circumcision of children to take place on the eighth day because that's the day when an infant's immune system, interestingly, is at its optimum level for such a procedure. Macmillan said this, newborn children have a peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth days of life. It seems an important blood clotting agent, vitamin K, is not formed in the normal amount until the fifth to seventh day of life. Another blood clotting agent, uh, Prothrombin is at its highest levels in infants on precisely the eighth day of life, making the eighth day the safest, earliest day to circumcise an infant. It's not so good of God. God just has everything perfectly lined up, worked out already. I love it. Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. So Sarai now is given a new name. There's, a, again, a, a, a change taking place that God is doing in their lives here. Again, there's that breathy sound added, that H in the Hebrew added to Sarah. Sarah means princess. It's not sure what Sarai means. Many believe that it simply meant princess as well. Some believe it meant contentious. <laughs> Either one would, would fit, but it shows her part in the plan of God's salvation and redemption of the world. She's going to be a princess. And, and, and princesses have kings, don't they? See, the very king of kings, the line of the tribe of Judah is going to come from Sarah's line here, from her offspring. I notice in verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. 
and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So at the very thought of Abraham and, and Sarah, Sarah birthing a child at 90 years old just caused Abraham to do what probably any one of us would have done, laugh. And we're talking like rolling on the floor with laughter here. Like he is just, he's just falling down. He just can't believe this. This is crazy. But this doesn't seem to be laughter of unbelief. No, this seems to be laughter at just delighting in God's goodness. In fact, Paul's commentary on this seems to shed better light for us in this year. Romans 4, 17 and 22 says, As is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already did, uh, dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He, notices he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, God was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham isn't sitting here laughing with, uh, like, God, come on, give me a break already. Like, she's 90 years old. I'm, I'm 99, pushing 100. We're not having kids. We can't do it. So Abraham's not laughing in unbelief. Paul says here that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He didn't waver. He didn't question. I believe this is laughter of just delight and excitement of God's goodness and just being in awe of God here. To do such an incredible thing. Now, Abraham loves Ishmael. Ishmael's been in the family here 13 years. Ishmael's 13 years old here. Abraham's seen this, this young man growing up. He's not looking to say, Ishmael, sorry, you're out, man. No, he's still like, God. He's looking, he's looking to the Lord saying, oh, what about Ishmael here? He's saying, oh, that Ishmael might live before you in verse 18. Abraham just kind of is saying, just, God, what about him? Could, could you work through him? But you see, Ishmael is a product of the flesh. And God doesn't recognize or use a product of the flesh. And we're going to discuss that in a, in a future study in Genesis in more detail. But God does say that Ishmael is going to be a great nation. But the covenant will come through Isaac, who's also named before his birth. Isaac, his name means, his name means laughter. I love that. See, every time you see Isaac, it's going to be an occasion to rejoice and just laugh at the goodness of God. Right? Especially when he's trying to convince people that Abraham and Sarah are not his great, great grandparents, but are actually his parents. People are just going, like, what? How is that possible? He's going to opportunity to say, man, this is the God that we serve. God is so good, where he's able to take that which seemed like dead and bring life out of it. That's how great God is, and just give people an occasion just to have a good, hearty laugh of joy in God's goodness here. So, verse 23, Abraham took Ishmael's son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son, Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So Abraham goes and he walks in full obedience. Full obedience where it's not just Ishmael. Tough break, man. You're going to have to go get circumcised. No, Abraham's going... I'm going to, at, at uh, 99 years old, he's getting circumcised. 
I mean, Abraham could have been like, God, what about that eight-day thing? Like, I'm well past that. Can I just, can I get grandfathered in? Can I just be like that grandfather clause now? I just like don't, I can skip that, right? No. He walks in full obedience here. And again, faith. Because what's, what's God saying? Abraham, through your seed. But now Abraham has to do something so scary with the very means by which procreation is going to happen. He has to go and, and, and mess around with this thinking, like, man, one wrong move, and like, there ain't going to be any opportunity for Z to come. And this is a step of faith for Abraham as well. Trust in the Lord, but again, there'd be that symbol that it's through his seed that the nations will be blessed. And Abraham walks in just a full life of obedience. He's not just, and notice this, it says in verse 23 that Abraham took Ishmael his son. Right? He's, he's leading him in this life of obedience. Saying, let's go, Ishmael. We got to go follow what the Lord has for us here. He doesn't just go tell Ishmael, go deal with this. He takes him, takes him with him as Abraham himself walks in obedience. Parents need to lead their children in that life of obedience. They need to participate along with them in these things. Abraham does that here. It's scary today to think of the things that we've left up to our children to decide. Children need to be led. They need to be led by godly parents in godly ways. Led by godly parents who are demonstrating a life of godliness and a life of obedience. Abraham leads that life of obedience. He does so parentally, publicly, and personally here. May we do the same. Live a life of consistent and complete obedience and just see the blessings of God in doing so. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for these life examples that we have from Abraham and Sarai, Hagar. Some examples that are ones to avoid, some examples that are ones to learn from and grow from. And I pray that God, of all these different lessons we've seen, you would be just applying Lord, those things to our own heart that we need to hear and know and live out. I pray that by your spirit, you would just take your word that's been shared tonight and begin to, again, equip us in it and plant that deep in our heart that we might live it out. And we thank you for the work of your spirit to do so. God, may we be those that aren't relying upon the flesh, upon our own wisdom, but that we're living out a life of complete faith, trusting you, God. Even when it seems impossible, God, that's when you come and you do a work that just brings greater glory to you. God, may we never doubt or worry or stress out. May we live by faith and trust in you. And may we live out that life of obedience as we follow you in every way. Help us and strengthen us in that. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.